You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 218, entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 12, given in London on the 19th of November, 1922. Footnote, this is the third semi-public lecture. End of footnote. As I have outlined in the past two days, Anthroposophy does not seek to be a merely theoretical outlook, one that might enable people to ignore unpleasant, painful aspects of life and take flight into a mystical world. Its aim instead is to engage fully with life as it is lived. It has to become practical, to inform real life. And this is because the mode of spiritual perception I described yesterday and the day before must lead us to fully encompassing and perceiving the world of spirit, which does not have some detached and separate existence, but is implicit in all material realities. Whenever we meet another person, we are by no means only concerned with what our eyes can perceive of him, what our linguistic understanding can grasp of what he says, or anything else our ordinary awareness can receive as external expressions of his being. We are also involved with his being of spirit, with the spiritual entelechy living in him, with a spiritual supersensible being that continually engages in his material organism. The kind of knowledge we acquire through our ordinary sensory perception and the intellect connected with this is unable to give us much understanding of the world. People subscribe to the illusion that they will eventually come to understand the world better as science improves by means of human intelligence, sensory observation and experimentation. But in fact, as the two lectures I have given sought to show, sensory observation and intellect alone can only encompass the mineral realm. Even the plant world already asks more of us. An understanding that much subtler laws and powers are at work there, originating from the cosmos, than human logic and sense alone can grasp. This is even truer when we encounter the world of the animals, and most of all so when we consider the human being. In plants, though least so in these, animals and human beings, the powers working in their physical organism, in the material realm, act like a kind of ideal magic. It is very mistaken to think that a material process observed in the laboratory can be observed in the same way in an animal or human organism. In the animal and human organism, a purely physical process is embedded in an ideal magic. We start to understand the nature of this ideal magic 
and what is at work in the human being by looking through and past his material processes to see how the spiritual realm is continually working in him. We can only grasp such spiritual magic through insights I spoke of here both yesterday and the day before. As I said, the first level of such insight shows us that the human being not only has a present and momentary relationship to the world, but can also transpose himself back to any age since he was born. I gave the example of going back to when we were 18 or 15 and experiencing what we experienced then. Not only is shadowy recall, but with the same intensity and vigor as one actually experienced it at the time. You become 15 or 12 again. You undergo this inner spiritual metamorphosis, and by this means you become able to perceive a second organism within the human being, a subtle organism which we can call etheric, because it has no weight like a spatial body. It is a subtler organism. But this finer organism is also a time organism. All at once, you perceive, in a complete overview, everything that constitutes this etheric organism as a temporal process. But at the same time, you know that this is an organism, and you learn to see that we dwell within this subtler temporal organism in the same way we ourselves live in our spatial organism. If, for instance, you observe someone suffering from, say, a certain kind of headache, you must be able to realize that a cure might well have to proceed from a particular inner organ of the body, and that it cannot be effected simply by treating the head itself, for the cause may be rooted in an organ far removed from it. In the spatial organism we inhabit, everything is connected, but the same is true also of the etheric time organism, which is especially active in earliest infancy, though it also remains mobile throughout life. It bears within it forces that act in the following way, for instance. Let us assume that at the age of 35 we have an opportunity to reshape our life situation. If we find we are equal to this new situation and find that we are able to act in the right way in it, we may become aware that a long time ago, as a twelve-year-old or eight-year-old, we learned the most important part of what has now enabled us to find our way rapidly into this new situation. At the age of thirty-five, a certain joy radiates from what came toward us in childhood through a carer or teacher say, when we were eight or ten. What happens in a child's ether body in response to the work of a teacher, to his teaching, works in the same way as an organ a good way distant from the head can, when we heal it, have a curative effect on the headache syndrome. What we experienced at the age of seven or twelve continues to act in us when we are thirty-five and still later, engendering a joyful mood or depression. A person's whole outlook, even at a very advanced age of adulthood, 
is dependent on what the teacher developed in the child's ether body in the same way that one organ of the human body is dependent on another. If we ponder this, we will realize that this insight arising from perception of how the etheric body develops, how its separate realities are interrelated, is the only proper basis for educational work with children. Think this thought right through, and you will see that just as a painter or other artist has to learn his craft and technique, so it is necessary for a teacher to acquire a craft and technique of teaching. Just as the painter must develop an eye, E-Y-E, superior to that of the amateur, for the forms he observes for colors and their interplay or dissonances, and then base his handling of colors on these observations, the way he handles his brush or pencil, acquiring something that works right through him and is based on his skill in observing, so the teacher must be able to draw on his observations of what acts spiritually in the human being and makes his biography a living whole. You see, education cannot be a science. It has to be an art. And in developing artistic capacities, we first have to acquire skills in observation, then also skill in engaging with and shaping our material as we go on observing it, go on wrestling with it. In the sense intended here, therefore, spiritual science, anthroposophic science of the spirit, can provide a foundation for a true, authentic art of education. But it does so also in another way. If education is to be really effective, it has to properly cultivate what seeks to emerge from deep within a person in childhood. In this art of education, a teacher really has to be able to regard the child as a divine moral mission entrusted to him. We can only find the strength to work alongside the child so that all his potential unfolds from within him when we raise ourselves inwardly, morally, through this educational work, so that it is imbued with something like religiosity or reverence. In other words, all teaching has to be a moral action, must originate in moral impulses, and these impulses must be applied to the kind of human insights and observations that I just described. If we take full account of this, we will find, however, that a human life falls into different periods in a much more defined way than we usually realize. People recognize outwardly that second dentition occurs in a child around the age of six or seven, and that certain physical changes accompany it. But they do not observe more carefully to discover what transformation occurs in the child during second dentition. But someone who knows how to properly judge what a child was like before the age of six and what he is like after this will see that after this age, six or seven, powers develop from the depths of the human being that were previously deeply concealed within it. If we consider this properly, we will find the following. Second dentition is not just a sudden, unique event in human life. 
the second dentition that occurs around six or seven, and never recurs again, is nevertheless something that has filled all of the child's life so far, from the emergence of the first teeth through to second dentition. Throughout this time, the powers that eventually enable the second teeth to emerge from within the organism are surging and pushing. And at second dentition, we have only a conclusion of what is active throughout the child's life so far. There is no third dentition. What does this mean? It means that up to the age of seven or so, the child has developed in his physical organism the powers he needs until the second teeth emerge, but which he no longer needs for his physical organism thereafter because there is no further dentition to accomplish. What happens to these powers or forces? We can find these powers again when we study the human being through supersensible perception. In the child's altered soul life between second dentition and puberty, the nature of his inner life changes and the soul acquires a different type of memory and a different relationship to his surroundings. If we know how to observe a child spiritually as well as physically, it becomes clear to us that what we see in the child's soul between the ages roughly of 7 to 14 previously lived in his physical organism, and in other words, was as yet an activity connected with second dentition, but not wholly encompassed by it. This activity also instigates many other processes in the human organism. Around the age of seven, it ceases to be physically active and begins to be active in the soul, in inner life. And so to understand the distinctive powers at work in the child's soul between the change of teeth and puberty, you must consider what occurs physically in the child from birth to second dentition. Soul powers are at work then, manifesting soul spiritually still in the physical organism. And this means that a proper understanding of the child, especially in infancy, but in a certain respect also through until the change of teeth, shows us that he is entirely sense organ, not in a coarse sense, but a subtler one. In a subtler kind of way, the child is entirely a sensing eye, E-Y-E. Just as the eye forms inner after images of what is outside us, giving us an inner picture of the objects in our surroundings, so in his infancy a child has an entire form of perception, though not specifically visual. He is entirely sense organ, if I can put it like that. Let me try to make this more tangible. Think of an infant. As adults, we have our sense of taste on the tongue and the palate. The young child, and we can learn this through spiritual science in ways I have described to you these last few days, has a flow of taste throughout his organism. He is entirely taste organ. He is also entirely an organ of smell, and also in a certain inner sense entirely an inner organ of touch. So his whole organism is sensory in nature, and this sensory nature radiates through his whole organism. 
This means that until the age of six or seven, the child's disposition is to inwardly echo everything that occurs in his surroundings and to develop his own being in accordance with it. If we observe a child with finer senses, perceiving him also by spiritual scientific means, and see how he relates to himself every gesture someone in his environment makes, inwardly echoes it, and seeks to embody it himself. And if we see how the child lives entirely in what people do in his surroundings, then we discover he is an imitative being until the change of teeth. And the most essential gift in the first period of life arises from this imitation. Human speech, based entirely on the fact that the child lives into what people around him are and what they do. By inwardly adapting to what happens in his surroundings and imitating it, a child develops the ability to speak. Carers and educators with responsibility for a child in this early period of life must therefore regard this principle of imitation as the most important thing to consider. We can only nurture and educate a child by engaging in activities and conducting ourselves in ways that the child should imitate if he is to become strong in spirit, soul and body. The constitution that the child will have throughout his life originates here, in what is implanted at this time, not only in his spirit and soul, but also his body, in the inner strengthening of his organs. The way I behave around a child of four is something he will carry with him until he is sixty, so that in later life he will feel the effect of my conduct as his destiny. Let me give an example. When you concern yourself with such things, someone might well come to you and say something like this, I just don't know what has happened. My child was always so good, never did anything wrong. And now he has done the most awful thing. He may, for instance, have stolen money from his mother. If you have some experience of child development, you would first ask how old the child is, and you hear that he is five. In other words, at this age, the imitative principle is still active. It turns out that the child has seen his mother taking money out of a drawer every day. He simply imitates this. It's nothing to do with good or bad. He just has an impulse to do what is done around him. We will be barking up the wrong tree completely if we think we should manage such behavior with moral commandments. We will only achieve something by offering the child an example to imitate. This even includes the way we think. Ah, yes, between a carer and a child a fine spiritual connection exists. And in proximity to the child we should try to cultivate thoughts and feelings which the child can inwardly imitate. You see, the child is an entirely sensing being, perceives what is occurring in his surroundings in the subtlest movements and actions, far beyond anything our adult senses are aware of. Having passed through the change of teeth, powers that previously sat deep inside the child's organism now become soul faculties. 
whereas the younger child was given up to his surroundings, now he lives as a soul meeting souls. The feeling of this age, compared with the earlier imitative instinct, is one of complying quite naturally with the authority of those around him. It really is like this. In the early years of childhood until second dentition, we seek to unite with our surroundings, wish to give ourselves up entirely to them. This is a kind of physical counterpart to religious sensibility. Religious sensibility is one where our spirit surrenders itself to the spirit. And likewise the child surrenders himself with his body to his physical surroundings the physical correlation or counterpart of religious sensibility. Once the child is over the age of six, he no longer gives himself and his body up to his physical surroundings, but instead surrenders his soul to other souls. The teacher comes into his own now, and it is necessary for the child to regard the teacher as a source of all good and ill for him and to participate as fully in what the teacher says and teaches him as before he participated in every gesture and outward action in his surroundings. A child between the age of six or seven and fourteen experiences the urge to surrender himself to a natural authority. The child wishes to become what this authority is for him, His love for this natural authority, his hearkening to it, is now a principle that works just as much as imitation did before. You may be surprised that someone who wrote a book entitled The Philosophy of Freedom in the 1890s is now propounding something you perhaps regard as unjustified, the principle of authority. But what I mean is this. It is a kind of natural law in human life that roughly between the ages of seven and fourteen a child inevitably regards teachers and educators as sources of natural authority. This is not an intellectual matter, not discernment of what is good, true, bad, wrong, or ugly. But the child, rather, finds something good because his teacher considers it good and beautiful because his teacher finds it beautiful. All mysteries of the world approach the child in this indirect way, through the person of the beloved teacher. This is the principle at work in human development, between roughly the ages of six or seven and fourteen. And so we can say that in his early childhood, the child is filled with the sense of surrender to his surroundings as a physical counterpart to religious sensibility. And between the change of teeth and puberty, with an aesthetic absorption of his surroundings, one permeated with love, he feels the urge to take pleasure in what the teacher presents to him, and to avoid what the teacher wishes to keep at a distance from him. The educational approach for this age should enter our inner perception, our inward sensibility, the carer educator or parent, must be a worthy example in early childhood. Whereas, in the second phase of childhood, the teacher must be, in the noblest sense, the natural authority in his whole being and character. Then, as teachers, we bear within us something which enables children, 
in our proximity to educate themselves. Moral education relies to an important degree on the self-education of the teacher. I will speak further of this in a moment, when the first part has been translated. If one can say that the child is entirely sense-organ up to the age of six, then, after the change of teeth, from six onward, we must regard the principle of sensory absorption as having risen away from the inner organism to its surface. But it continues to be the case that sensory impressions entering a child at this age cannot yet have an ordering, regulating effect on the sense organs. Between second dentition and puberty, we find that the child wishes to be feelingly surrendered to his whole sensory organization, but is as yet unable to participate in this sensory organization from within outwards with his will. Involvement in the sensory organization from within gives us intellectual people, and we only become so after puberty. Only then, really, are we able to judge the world intellectually. You see, judging the world intellectually means, at the same time, to judge it in personal terms, out of our inner freedom. This is a capacity we only acquire once we have entered puberty. But this in turn means that between the change of teeth and puberty, we should not educate children in an intellectual way, nor in an intellectually moral way either. In his first seven years, the child wants to have outer sensory reality there before him to imitate. After seven, the child wants to hear from his authoritative teacher what he can do and what he can't, what he should regard as true and false, right and wrong, and so on. But now, between the age of eight and nine, something extraordinarily important starts to stir in the child. A teacher who observes human nature very carefully will show, excuse me, will know that at some point between the age of eight and nine, a child will be in very special need of something. He does not yet have intellectual doubts, but an inner restlessness, something like an inner question that in his childlike way he is asking of destiny. He cannot express this in words and does not need to, but he senses it in a dreamy kind of way, semi-consciously. If we have observed children properly with the real eye, E-Y-E, of a teacher, we can experience how children approach this age. They want something very particular of the teacher who they look up to with love. This question of theirs cannot usually be answered by some intellectual response. It is instead a matter of developing an especially intense and intimate relationship of trust with the child at this age, giving a child the sense that one is offering him a great deal of loving attention. This question the child asks of life, which is of the very greatest significance, is answered when he receives love in this way, and can have trust in his teacher. What is the nature of this question, really? As I have said, it isn't a question the child asks rationally, but in his feelings with the whole of his subconscious being. He does not formulate it in words, but we can do so. 
Up to this age the child has naively accepted his beloved teacher's authority, without further question. But now a need has awoken in him to feel good and bad in a new way, as if they were present as powers in the world. Until now the child looked up to the teacher, but now he wants to look through the teacher and say to himself, quote, This teacher is not just someone who says something is good or bad, but he says it because he is a messenger of the Spirit, a messenger of God. His knowledge comes from higher worlds. Close quote. As I said, the child does not formulate this rationally, but this is what he feels. And this special question of his, which also rises in his feelings, tells us what a child now needs. It shows us that what we say is good or bad or true or false must now be rooted in something deeper. And then the child finds new trust and confidence in the world. This is also the moment when moral education can enter a different phase from mere imitation or our word that something is good or bad. At this age, between eight and nine, we can start to present morality to children in a pictorial way. Not intellectually, for the child is still given up to the senses, uninformed by intellect. We should generally educate in a pictorial way between the change of teeth and puberty. Teach him in pictures, pictures for all the senses. Although a child at this age is no longer entirely sense-organ, He still lives in the senses that are focused now at the surface of his body. Tomorrow in our evening lecture I will elaborate on how we need to educate children aged six or seven through reading or writing in general. But now I want to examine the moral aspect of education. At this moment, between the age of eight or nine, we should start to present pictures to the child that especially stimulate his imagination, pictures of good people, evoking a feeling of sympathy with the deeds of such people. Please note, I specifically do not say that we should inculcate moral commandments or address the intellect with moral judgments and precepts. Instead, we should approach the aesthetic realm, the imagination. We should awaken pleasure or displeasure in the child in response to what is good or bad or right or wrong. Pleasure in nobility and moral actions, but equally in redress, accomplished, wrong deeds put right. Previously we had to act as moral exemplars, as an embodiment of what is right. Now we add to this pictures, excuse me, now we add to this pictures that act only on the faculty of imagination expressed within his sensory nature. Until puberty, the child should absorb morality in his feelings. He should develop a certainty in his feeling judgment that he has sympathy with what is good and antipathy for what is bad. Sympathies and antipathies, feeling judgments, must be the foundation of morality in him. If we understand that the human temporal body is, as I have described, an organism in which everything is interrelated, then we can see that we need to do the right thing at the right time for a child. 
You cannot ask a plant to grow in a way that produces a flower immediately. Flowering emerges from earlier development. The plant first has to develop roots. It would be nonsense to expect a flower to emerge instead of roots. In the same way, if you teach a child intellectually formulated moral precepts between the change of teeth and puberty, this is like trying to turn a root into a flower. You first have to nurture the seedling, the root, in other words, morality in feelings. Once a child has cultivated morality in his feelings, then after puberty he will awaken to intelligence, and then he himself will elaborate and inwardly develop what he possessed as feelings between second dentition and puberty. Then he can awaken moral intellectual judgment within himself. And this is something so vital for life, upon which all moral education must be founded. Just as you cannot turn the root of a plant into its flower, but must wait until the root is developed, then leaves, until finally the plant unfolds its flower, so likewise you must cultivate the root of morality in feeling judgments, in a sympathy for moral actions. And then you can stand back and allow the individual himself to bear these feelings into his intellect through his own autonomous powers. And then later in life, he will have a profound inner sense of satisfaction that what lives in him are not mere memories of principles that a teacher gave him about what is right or wrong, but instead that inner joy, inner energy, filled his whole emotional life so that he himself could awaken to the freedom of moral judgment at the proper time. By doing this, we avoid educating a child to slavishly adhere to some moral orientation. Instead, we prepare in the child something that can itself flower as moral compass from a person's free-growing being of soul. Instead of equipping the child with fixed moral judgments, this endows him with moral strength. And this is something that shows us repeatedly if we're seeking a spiritual foundation for education, that we must always try to bring things toward the child in the right way at the right time. Now you will ask me this. If you're going to educate a child in a way that implants a moral sensibility in him between the change of teeth and puberty, rather than by giving him moral exhortations that appeal to his intellect, then what are you appealing to in him? Well, you are drawing on his relationship with you as a natural authority, the imponderable aspects of the connection between the teacher and child. Let me illustrate this with an example. I can try to teach a child something, pictorially, about the immortality of the soul, pictorially and not by some theoretical argument. The child really isn't available for scientific or academic argument until puberty. I must weave nature and spirit together for him and convey something that I perhaps form into an artistic image. Quote, Look at the cocoon or chrysalis of a butterfly, close quote, I might say. Quote, the butterfly crawls out of the cocoon, and in the same way the soul emerges from the human body when it succumbs to death. Close quote. 
In this way I stimulate the child's imagination, bringing a living moral picture before his inward eye, E-Y-E. I can do this in one of two ways. I can either think I am a skilled teacher, terribly clever, while the child is small and rather thick-witted. And because the child has not yet risen to my lofty height, I will create a picture for him. The image has no intrinsic value for me, but I create it for the child. If I tell myself such things, and with this underlying outlook try to convey the image to the child, it will not work in his soul. It will just go in one ear and out the other. You see, imponderable factors are at work between the child and the teacher. But if instead I realize that I am not in fact a great deal cleverer than the child, or perhaps that the child is subconsciously a great deal cleverer than I am, if I feel reverence for the child, and in relation to this picture I wish to convey, think to myself, quote, actually this is not my image. Nature itself has given us a picture in the emerging butterfly, close quote. And I myself believe as deeply in this picture as the child should believe in it. If I possess this strength of belief, then the picture will also root in the psyche of the child. And things that are not part of coarser reality but live in a subtler world will work between the teacher and the child. These imponderables at work between the child and teacher will fulsomely replace anything intellectual that might pass from teacher to child. This allows the child also to develop freely alongside the teacher. The teacher thinks, quote, I live in proximity to the child and must create opportunities for the child to educate himself as far as possible. But to do so, I have to stand alongside the child with a sense that I am not hugely elevated, I am just someone who is a few years older than the child. Quote. Relatively speaking, we do not always become cleverer as we grow older. We need not think ourselves superior to the child, but instead should see ourselves as helpers in his development. If as a gardener one seeks to nurture a plant, what does not push the sap in the stem to get it moving from root to flower, but just prepares the surrounding soil so that the sap can flow. As a teacher, one should be selfless so that the child's own inner powers can develop. This is good teaching, and then a child will thrive as he should. If morality is developed in a child in this way, Then, in the same way as a plant grows naturally, one aspect after another emerges. Initially, in full harmony with human nature, it manifests in the imitative human organism. It is consolidated there in the way described and gives a person in later life the necessary inner strength, also sustained by his physical organism, to be morally assured. Otherwise, his physical organism might weaken, grow weak, so that a person may have a good sense of morality but be unable to adhere to it. If a child has good, clear, strong examples in infancy, his moral stability develops. And if, from the change of teeth to puberty, 
A person's powers of sympathy and antipathy for good and bad have properly taken root in him. Later he will be able to overcome the kinds of depression that might prevent him from doing what is morally necessary. As an imitative being, he has developed within his organism what his soul will need for its moral sensibility, its feelings of sympathy and antipathy, as these are cultivated in the second seven-year period. And in the third seven-year period, now oriented to the spirit by life itself, intellectual moral judgment awakens in free human development in the same way that a plant awakens to flower and fruit through sunlight. Morality will only really take proper root in the mind and spirit if body and soul have been prepared for this in a way that allows it to awaken through and in life, just as the flower and fruit awaken through and in sunlight. But when morality is developed in a person in this way, with respect for him, for his inner freedom, moral impulses will connect with him inwardly and allow him to really feel that they are part of him, belong to him. Then he will feel his moral faculties and moral actions in the same way that he senses the circulation of his blood and growth forces within him. He inevitably feels that the natural life of the body belongs to him and pulses everywhere in his organism, endowing him with strength right through to the surface of his skin. And in the same way he will feel morality as a power intrinsic to him because he himself has developed it. And what does this mean for him? It means that he realizes that without this moral sensibility he is, in a sense, crippled. Just as someone is actually crippled without a physical limb, so the kind of moral development I am speaking of will give people the sense that if they did not have a strong moral compass, if they did not imbue their actions with morality, they would be a kind of cripple in life. If people have a strong inner sense, that they would be crippled without morality, then their education has provided them with the strongest possible morally motivating force. As long as we help a person to develop in the right way, he will want to be whole. And specifically when morality approaches him in this way, this means in turn that he will by his own powers and motivation also develop an inner inclination for the spirit and he will see the good that streams through the world at work and active within him just as he sees natural forces at work in his body. He will understand what one means metaphorically by saying, for example, that an iron horseshoe has inner forces, can be used as a magnet. Someone else will dismiss this other aspect of iron. What's that to me, he will say. Iron is iron. I'll use it to shoe my horse. This is like someone whose various stages of development have not enabled him to see the spiritual at work within us as whole human beings. This is because he has an eye, E-Y-E, only for outward things, for immediate utility, rather than for the spiritual reality that works and holds sway in human beings.
to educate someone without helping him to develop the right way of understanding life, without developing the powers he needs, is an education that metaphorically fails to create in people an awareness that magnetic iron shaped as a horseshoe can be used as more than a horseshoe. They will not develop a full view of life or unfold the right powers. If we understand this in the full spiritual sense, feeling it and transposing it into our will, this will also be the strongest motivating force in social coexistence. Our time is dominated by social questions, with great justification. I wish I had time to speak about these issues at greater length, but my time has run out. I will end just by saying this. The social question has a great many aspects, and much work will be needed to address all its diverse details in a way that may eventually lead in future to a reform of society such as any open-minded person will wish for. But all the outward institutions we can possibly conceive of and introduce in practice, all the possible schemas people nowadays formulate about society, appear in the following light to someone who has a spiritual view of morality. Trying to address the social question without including the question of morality in it is like trying to look for something in a room devoid of light. The social question can only be seen in the right light if we fully encompass the question of morality as well. If we survey all the interconnected aspects of life, we will find that the moral question really is like the light that must illumine social community. The social question must come to be fully and authentically a human question, must acquire a religious dimension. What is needed today, above all, also as far as the life of society is concerned, is for people to gain a relationship to the question of morality. I believe I have been able to show that what I have called a spiritual science, an anthroposophic spiritual science, also tackles the great issues of contemporary life in an authentic way, and that it gives serious attention to the question of morality and the way in which education can help human beings to develop moral sensibility. The end of Lecture 12